Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. This week on Unforgotten, when Robert discovered his mother brutally murdered in her home on September 15th, 1985, shock and fear rippled through the past her love of dancing to Carmel, who started dancing at age eight in Southwest England, where her family escaped to during the London Blitz. Carmel continued pursuing her dream of a dance instructor after settling in Alabama and opened the Carmel School of Dance. Carmel had a standard routine and she always opened the grocery store every morning. So when she deviated from that routine on Sunday, Robert, who lived next door, you know, why would they have released the scene that quickly? Here we are going on 40 years. This is one of the older cases we've had. We don't have very many that are older than this. Yeah, they took a lot away when they took her away. Hey everyone, this is Sellers. And this is Stormy. And And this this is is Unforgotten. Unforgotten, Where each episode will highlight unsolved missing, murdered, and suspicious death cases in Alabama in order to raise awareness and hopefully obtain some answers for victims and their families. Please remember that any individual referenced in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law. And any opinions or views expressed in the podcast are solely those of participants. Listener discretion is advised as some of the content discussed in the podcast may contain violence or graphic descriptions and may not be suitable for all audiences. Be sure to join our Unforgotten Patreon channel today to gain exclusive benefits, including early access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. By subscribing, you'll also be supporting the efforts of ACCA in assisting families in raising awareness for Alabama cold cases. And now for episode 25, Carmel Harrell. Hey there, guys, and welcome back. It's an exciting day for you, Stormy. It certainly is. We're signing today, so I am super excited. (laughs) So then will everything be done and you guys can like just technically like you just pick these up on the 31st? Yep, on the 31st, and it's ours. Uh, it's almost there. I know. I'm so excited. So excited. I'm happy. Okay, so today is Friday um, when yeah. we're recording. And right. it's high school football kickoff. Ooh, yay. Woo-hoo. Well, some <laughs> some of the football teams actually played. Um, some of the schools played last week. Yeah. Um, but some are their first games are this week, like ours. And I'm so excited because football season is like one of my favorite seasons. Yeah. We well, I think about even that. NFL, I think preseason's done now and that they're getting ready to go into regular season. So I'm excited about that, too. I know. I've been watching it. Oh, Seahawks are doing good. Uh, uh, it's not to be, too bad. Of course, I've been they, watching. I don't mean to disparage the Seahawks because I am in Washington. But they do tend to start out really good. Oh, don't jinx them. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. I've slapped my hand. 
<laughs> but I would really like to see them go. I, this it'd be nice after a few years of not going very far. It would be great. I know. Everybody's always like, "How did you get to be a Seahawks fan?" That's not even close. I'm like, well, one time I was playing Madden on the yeah. PlayStation, <laughs> and I won with them, and I just decided, yes, that's who I'm gonna go for. That and would I'm be my husband. My husband used to play Seahawks Madden a lot. <laughs> yep. So, so I'm excited, okay. but I just like any football. I don't really care, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, um, I, we're getting back into it now. We took a break from it for a while, but we're we're back in. We, we got sucked way in. Is there anything new with you this week? No, not, I actually just have, like, really, I've been in a trial all week, and um, yeah, it was an Ulrich trial, and that's been about it. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah. took a, a lot of time. It was long days, and... So nothing. Yeah, you were at it a long time yesterday. Oh my gosh, yes. But they got it done, and I am glad to have today off. (laughs) I learn a lot, though, about things that I will never need to know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, don't we all sometimes? (laughs) Yeah. I've decided I'm going to start using the word fracking for everything. Oh, Oh, I love this. Oh, yay. We just got through watching Battlestar Galactica. And we just watched the whole series, like, not, we finished it, like, a couple of, well, What are you three talking about? Ago. Where did that come from? Fracking? Oh. Are you kidding? I, oh, you're oh. talking about fracking, like, oil rigs. Oh, do you not, you don't know about Battlestar Galactica? <gasps> no. Oh, honey, you got to watch Battlestar Galactica, like, okay. the new series. Okay. That is, like, On the list. best series. It's way different than the old one. Way, way yeah. different. But it is, like, super good. Well, I'll put that fracking show on. <laughs> I'll put that fracking show on my list then. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, that's a new thing for you and I now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> so this week, our case takes us on a virtual trip down to southern mid-central Alabama to Lowndes County. And its county seat is Hainville, Alabama. We want to share with you a bit about the county and its history. As we've come to learn, Lowndes County is another county whose borders were pieced together with surrounding counties. Parts of Montgomery, Dallas, and Butler counties form Lowndes County by an act of the General Assembly in 1830. And it was named for a statesman named William Lowndes. The county is located in the Black Belt region, which we've mentioned in a previous episode and is home to many antebellum homes and a place where agriculture is dominant. A heavy dose of the civil rights movement took place in and around Lowndes County. The migration of African Americans leaving oppressive conditions of segregation, which contributed to a drop in agriculture, became so prevalent that by the 60s, the population had decreased by around two-thirds. Today, small geographically and by population, Lowndes County is home to only 9,965 people. And measuring only two square miles, just slightly over 800 people hang their hats in Hainville. Though the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 were huge steps to fight racism and violence, it was slow going and protests came to a head right in the county seat, Hainville. The county was beginning to be referred to as Bloody Lounds. Protesters continued to be arrested and the situation was heating up. On August 20th, 1965, 
four protesters who had been arrested along with 25 others for helping Martin Luther King Jr.'s efforts and appealed to help after Bloody Sunday were released from Hainville Jail. The four were a Catholic priest and a seminarian, as well as two Black female activists. As they left and walked towards a small store to get a soda, Barner's Cash Store, this was one of the very few local businesses who would serve non-white people. But as they approached, they were threatened by Thomas Coleman, who actually barred them from the store and told them to leave. Coleman actually aimed his shotgun at a woman protester, 17-year-old Ruby Sales, and shot. The seminarian, Jonathan Daniels, pushed her down, taking the shot, and he instantly died. The priest, Father Morris Rowe, grabbed the other protester, Joyce Bailey, and ran. Coleman then shot Father Morris Rowe in the back. I, I just can't even imagine this scene. Uh, and sometimes and all they were is, doing is getting a soda. Sometimes it's so hard to really kind of even imagine, I guess, or even think about the fact that this all really happened. I mean, we see mm-hmm. things that happen now and yeah. we know it's not right. And we know that no matter how far we've come in all, all of these years, that mm-hmm. regardless of what is said, racism is still alive in some places. Yeah. And it's, but it's still, when it's so, we talk about this and all of the things that happened back in the 60s and it's just all, I don't know, it's hard sometimes. And to imagine watching this going down and being involved in this and that's, I don't know, it's just a lot. It is. And yeah. I'm glad that we've made these, made the progression that we have. We still have a long way to go. We do. After this occurred, Martin Luther King Jr. himself heard about the murder and commended Daniels for his act of heroism. It's just sad that he had to be a hero mm-hmm. in this situation. And although a grand jury indicted Coleman for manslaughter, and the then Attorney General of Alabama, Richmond Flowers Sr., believed that it should have been for murder. Judge Worth Thaggard removed Flowers from the case. An all-white jury acquitted him on a self-defense claim, and he was appointed later as a special deputy by the sheriff. Oh, so self-defense over a soda and Mm -hmm. a special recognition. Yep. Mm. Crazy. With the Voting Rights Act in place and the Civil Rights Act, the number of African-American voters in Lowndes County grew to the point that they became the majority of the county's registered voters. In an attempt to alter the change in the status quo, many white people were fired from their jobs and African-Americans were evicted. Refusing to leave the county and forfeit their right to vote, a large number of those families formed what was known as Tent City on the Matthew Jackson family land on Highway 80 where many lived for at least two years until finding new permanent residences. In 2006, the Lowndes Interpretive Center was built on the site of Tent City as a nod towards the county activists' determination and sacrifice. But the Lowndes County Freedom Organization continued to fight as so many civil rights groups did, and eventually the county saw its first black sheriff, John Hewlett, who was elected in 1970. With all that in mind, we're going to jump forward 20 years to the tragic death of Carmel Clark Harrell. But first, let's talk about a little bit of her background, because she has 
some interesting history. She does. Carmel was born on November 27, 1932, in London to Annie Rosenberg Clark and Reginald G. Clark. Annie, a dance instructor in England, passed her love of dancing to Carmel, who started dancing at age eight in southwest England, where her family escaped to during the London Blitz in 1940 to 1941. Their family returned to London after World War II ended. Growing up in London, England, Carmel pursued her passion for ballet by gaining entrance to the world-renowned Royal Academy of Dance in London. Ballet is not running around in a pretty little dress. Dancing requires much self-discipline. It is an art. You make yourself do things that look impossible. That's actually a quote from Carmel. Um, she had a dance recital that they did a big write-up in one of the newspapers, and oh, I just thought really it was neat. filled with great quotes from her. Yeah. And it's a, they kind of said a lot about her um, and who she was as a person as far as her dedication. You kind of get an idea of what she expected and probably what her general attitude and behaviors were, you know, yeah, because it kind does of her take philosophy a philosophy of, of life a little bit. Right. Yeah. It take it does take a lot of self-discipline. It takes a lot of practice and motivation and determination and um, you know, it's rigorous training. And yeah. I think, you know, that's probably something that you keep with you, you know, yeah. throughout your life. Students of the Royal Academy had two tracks to choose from. They could either train to become a professional dancer or trained to become an instructor of ballet. While Carmel did dance with professional ballet companies, she ultimately became a ballet instructor, opening a studio in London. Another quote from Carmel, It's as much to teach them to dance as it is to give them an appreciation of the music and all that goes along with a ballet performance. In the early 1950s, Carmel's mother held a dinner for a group of military men in London. During that dinner, Carmel met Frank Colvin Harrell, a U.S. Army man from Hainville, Alabama, and fell in love. The pair were wed in London in March of 1954, and Carmel moved from London to Alabama to be with Frank. Carmel continued pursuing her dream of a dance instructor after settling in Alabama and opened the Carmel School of Dance in March of 1955, which boasted two locations, a studio in Selma and a studio in Fort Deposit. Additionally, she taught dance in Camden as well as Lowndes County High School over the years and took part in the Selma Music Club. The Harrells had two children, Robert and Faith. In 1994, Robert married Cheryl. Faith also married a man named Kenneth Polk, and they had two children, Kevin and Valerie. Faith has since remarried, and presently her last name is Hogue. We were able to chat with Faith a bit, and she helped us get to know Carmel a little bit more. She loved ballet, I think, more than anything, except, you know, her family, of course. But she, it was, she lived, breathed it. She absolutely loved it. It was, it was a big part of her. And when she started teaching here, that's when she really felt at home. Then there were, you know, Christmas memories, because she loved Christmas. And uh, we always made a Christmas pudding and we always made it a couple of months ahead of time and we put because in England you know they're supposed to put sixpence in their Christmas pudding but we of course didn't have any sixpence so we used silver dimes to go into our Christmas pudding 
And I still have those silver dimes and I still make Christmas pudding every year. In 1984, just three days before Robert and Cheryl's wedding, and only nine months prior to Carmel's death, Frank lost a battle with lung cancer. Robert and Cheryl had tried to reschedule three times so his father could attend the wedding, but ultimately he was too ill. After their marriage, Robert and Cheryl moved into a home next door to Carmel. During their marriage, Carmel and Frank had opened several successful businesses, including her studios, an auto parts store, Carmel's dress shop, and the town's largest grocery store, which Carmel continued to run with the help of Robert after Frank's death. Carmel seemed to be well-liked and well-known in town, as was Frank. One of the things we read was that after her death, Judge Harold Hammonds, which was actually a relative of Frank's, credited Carmel for saving his life one evening at dinner when he appeared ill and she called an ambulance thinking he just needed to go to the hospital or just looked ill. It turned out he was actually in the early stages of heart attack. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Like, glad they caught that, obviously. Yeah. A lot of people but wouldn't. I mean, you're just having dinner imagine that was and somebody a looks a little surprise. ill. Why don't you go yeah. home and lay down, you know, type of a thing. Yeah. So He's also, I think, the one that talked about in one of the articles that she was kind of one of those people where if she liked you, you knew and she told mm-hmm. you. Yeah. And if you if she didn't, you also knew because she yeah. told you, you know. She was pretty at face value, I think. Yeah, outspoken. I, like, mm-hmm. there was no guessing. She very much told you what was on her mind. Right. And that might be a little bit of a culture difference, too. It could you know, be, having, yeah. I think maybe a little bit of a time difference. Yeah. Too. Yeah, you're right. And this um, is years later, too. So she's a little bit older at this point. And I know one thing that um, my grandmother tells me sometimes is that now that she's older, she like just doesn't care. Mm-hmm. My she's mom like, talks about I just that say things. quite a bit, too. <laughs> you know, I, like maybe sometimes I should maybe filter that. She was like, but I've lived long, en- I've lived long enough. I can just tell you, you know, like. Yep. If people don't I like it. Don't oh, well. I'm like, yeah, well, go ahead then, you know. <laughs> yeah. And although we talked about Lowndes County and the small town of Hainville having once been notorious hotspots for racially motivated murders during the civil rights movement, the two decades that followed had witnessed a significant decline in such events. Therefore, when Robert discovered his mother brutally murdered in her home on September 15, 1985, shock and fear rippled through the community. And I think that's something that is still felt today um, as far as that shock and, you know, confusion, really, over Mm -hmm. why this has never been solved. Right. Well, and it's such a small community, too. Right. You know, it's less than a thousand people. Um, She lived one block from the courthouse. Yeah. I guess. I mean, if anybody lived kind of brazen, to be honest. Yes, everybody probably lived one block from the courthouse, if you think about it. It's not very well, big. Well, that's but, true. <laughs> um, you know, it's everybody knows everybody. Mm-hmm. And that makes it probably worse because that means it's probably somebody you know. <laughs> yeah. And especially with her having the dance studios, she had taught dance to a lot of people. I think they said she had taught dance to over a thousand students. 
she, you know, knowing that this was a well-known person in their community that this could happen to, it was just kind of mind-boggling. Yeah. Carmel had a standard routine, and she always opened the grocery store every morning. So when she deviated from that routine on Sunday, Robert, who lived next door, went to her home to check on her. After no answer from his mother, Robert went inside to look for Carmel and discovered a horrible scene. Lying on the floor next to her blood-stained bed was the nude, lifeless body of Carmel. Authorities told media outlets she had been beaten to death with a heavy object and sexually assaulted. It's just... I can't even imagine walking in and finding my mother that way. No. And that's traumatizing mm-hmm. in and of itself. Yeah. And it just, I can't imagine that that would be something that you ever forget. You know, I don't even know that you could think, you know, sometimes they always say, like, you know, time doesn't heal anything, but sometimes it just makes it easier to deal with. But I don't know that that's something that would ever get easier to deal with, having been the person that saw it. I'd always um, wonder is if every time I saw a picture of her, what would pop into my brain? I know, which we didn't really, we didn't get to talk to Robert, but we did get to talk to Cheryl. And both of them said, you know, they wish and hope that they could see a resolution to this, find out who is responsible for this. Um, because it's been a long time and there's not a lot of information forthcoming right. anymore. Right. The preliminary comments from the coroner, Willie McGee, was that there was no struggle. In the autopsy, he confirmed that she had been beaten to death approximately 12 hours prior to discovery and that she had been sexually assaulted. Law enforcement also stated that it appeared there were no signs of forced entry. Authorities stated a fireplace poker was missing from Carmel's home and may have been the murder weapon though a lawnmower blade was also mentioned in some of the news reports. And Those are two probably, very different things. Yeah, and the lawnmower really, blade kind of bothers me. It does me too, and I'm wondering where that came from because I don't personally think that the injuries made from a poker are going to be the same as the injuries made from a lawnmower blade. And you would think that the lawnmower blade wasn't very convenient to have unless they had it with them already. They're going to weigh two different things, right? And mm-hmm. like they're going to have two different weights. They're going to be two different sizes. They're going to be, you know, a poker is going to be long and very skinny. And right. Um, totally different blade is wounds. Wider. Yeah, totally different ones. Yeah. My first thought about this um, fireplace poker that was about have you, that documentary. This isn't the staircase. Mm-hmm. Wasn't that where they also had the fireplace poker and then it was I believe found, like, it in was. the basement? Yeah, um, I believe it was. Yeah. Theories form that someone could have followed her home after closing the store and taking home their receipts for the day. And the robbery theory seemed to have been the most prominent. To add to that theory, several Susan B. Anthony dollars were found in the backyard during a search of her property. Word spread quickly around the small town, and neighbors and friends all came to the house to look on as police processed the scene. According to reports, several fingerprints were found at the scene, and many men, I think around a dozen, were questioned, but no arrests were made and still haven't been made. The whole community was shaken by this violent death, and people, especially the older women, became vigilant about locking their doors, something we've talked about with small towns 
especially so many years ago and even in some places today, that people yeah. don't always lock their doors. Absolutely. Um, one lady even said she put her house up for sale. I, I can't even imagine. You know, she didn't feel you know, safe. Again, we talked about the small community and there were, it, it, apparently there was enough older community members that felt very threatened because they were, you know, similar ages to Carmel. I was reading through like a couple of the articles before we started recording and like mm-hmm. there was one that said they put their house up for sale because they didn't feel safe anymore. Another mm-hmm. one said they started carrying um, a handgun. Mm-hmm. Um, then another one was like, well, this isn't a law enforcement problem. This is a problem with somebody like basically not having any boundaries and not controlling themselves. And that, you know, they were not concerned really for their own safety. But, you know, like we were just talking about that in a community where you feel like you know everybody, especially for older people who have watched the younger people grow up and you're thinking more likely than not, this is somebody we know. Mm-hmm. Yep. Didn't think they were going to do this. But then you also have to think, too, that there's probably that one person in the community that everybody's in a mind, like, always goes to that they're like, they would be capable of this. Yeah. That like one if somebody did bad this, seed or, you, you know, know, want somebody with a really hot temper or something. Like, there's you know. something that mm-hmm. some kind of event or run-in or something that they've had that didn't sit right and made them think like, hmm, they could, they could have done this. Yeah. That's just obviously speculation. But if there was something that some kind of odd happenstance, like make sure that's been told, make sure you get that to somebody. SBI yeah. got involved in the investigation pretty early on. I think, um, yeah. you know, there were quite a few people that were involved in the investigation. You know, they said the weapon has never been recovered, according to the articles and right. from what we found. And there's not really been any updates since it initially happened. We were fortunate enough that we connected with some of Carmel's family and were able to get kind of some updated information, although they didn't really have a lot of updated information because they haven't had any contact with any investigators in years. Right. So, But they did know a little bit from the original investigation that probably wasn't as public at the time. Right. Like, there were potential signs of forced entry, which Robert mm-hmm. and Cheryl had pointed out to the sheriff, but they don't know that that was ever actually taken serious. That could have been where some of the fingerprints came from, I guess. True. That missing fire poker was actually found many days later inside Carmel's home under the bed in Robert's old room. I'm curious about that, whether that the poker actually had signs of the injuries. I mean, did they actually know at that point that that was the weapon? You know, maybe we should ask about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it goes back to um, that documentary that we were talking about. That mm-hmm. fire poker was found in their basement later, mm-hmm. well yeah. after the fact, you know. Yeah. And that was one thing she said was, why wasn't that found in the initial search of the property? Why, why did it take so long? if it was the weapon, why did they continue to say that they didn't, if they didn't have, it? have the weapon? Yeah. And mm-hmm. I don't know how long after the fact it was found and who found it. In talking with Faith, she also shared that Carmel had not been working at the store the day before, as we thought, as an assumption from what we read in the papers. 
Since Frank died, she and another woman in town had joined a widow's group that met in Montgomery. She was actually with that group Saturday morning and had gotten home around 1 or 2 or somewhere around that time. Faith told us that they believe whatever happened to Carmel happened soon after she got home, whether the person was in the house already or afterwards. We were also told that Carmel did put up a fight. Yeah. yeah. Apparently, um, drugs were a bad problem at that time. I was just going to say, yeah. And, you know, they were told that it was potentially either someone extremely high on drugs. Mm -hmm. But another thing was that it could have also possibly been someone who really, who knew her and really, really disliked her because apparently a lot of the injury was not just to her head, but also her face. Yeah. And there was not mention of that to her in the papers. You don't see that anywhere, so. Which I think, I think there was some disagreements between the sheriff's office and the coroner who were, who was giving the comments at the time, because it seems like the coroner was making statements and the sheriff's office was coming back, if I remember this correctly, saying, I don't know where you guys are getting this information. Yeah, they were actually publicly saying, yeah, I don't, I can't confirm that information or something like that. I'm not sure why he's saying that. The coroner's coming out and he's saying, yes, there's like blunt force trauma to the head, like heavy blunt object, one or two hits or such and such. Like he's saying all of these things and the sheriff's office is coming right behind him. And when they're asked about it, they're saying, I don't know where these comments keep coming from. We can't confirm that. Well, it's coming from the coroner. So who do you believe? Do you believe the coroner or do you believe the sheriff's office? Right. And I kind of wondered at the time if. Maybe they were trying to quell getting that information to the public because they didn't want that information out yet. And maybe, maybe the coroner, when he saw this as an opportunity to get his name out there, I don't know because I don't know who Mm -hmm. the coroner is. Um, Or maybe it was one of those things where it was like he felt like the public needed to know this. And one of the complaints in all of the newspaper articles and from the community and all of that was that there were no updates. There were no Uh, motives released. There was nothing to really kind of calm those fears and those panic, that panic that the community had down from law enforcement. They weren't coming out and saying, we have an idea of who did this. We have an idea why they did this. You shouldn't be worried or we have no idea. You should be concerned. Um, There were a lot of articles. There was, I mean, over the months and even a little bit further, there were so many articles written about this, but most of them were in regards to her, rather, you know, like what she was like and fundraising for her and her, all of those things that you do when somebody passes and they're well-liked, you know, in the community. Yeah, And there's but, a you lot. Know, but not a lot of new information would ever come out in any of those articles. And we talk about this, we understand there is information that can't be given to the public. There's a reason for that because there are some things that only um, the person responsible would know. And so you want to keep that kind of close to the vest because otherwise you give away your advantage. And you also don't want to tip them off so they know either what to avoid or what to say. And so I get that to an extent, um, but you're looking at years down the road and there's been no update on this. And they, you Mm. know, what Cheryl told us was that the crime scene actually was cleaned up by local people that same afternoon yeah. that she was found. That just and, blows me away, to be honest. I mean, not only did they do 
what some would say maybe wasn't a, a thorough investigation at the beginning. We don't know that for sure. But, you know, why would they have released the scene that quickly is another right. question, let alone having just some people from the general community helping to clean that up. I just kind of. Well, I guess, you know, when it comes to cleaning up that stuff, I guess that's one of those things where it's like, unfortunately, kind of left up to the family to do. I guess you're right. Um, Yeah. And when you have something like this where it's really obviously traumatic, gruesome, families probably don't want to do that. So I can appreciate that the locals wanted to jump in and do that. I guess so. Yeah. Um, I mean, you have companies for that now, but they're still part of the general public. They're not. Employees yeah. of the it just seems like it's anything. fast, though. Like, did they process yeah. it that fast? I don't know what the average time is, though. I don't know, but I can't imagine that same afternoon. I mean, I would think at least a full day, if not a couple full days, you know, at the and, very minimum. Uh, we're talking about in the 80s, so yeah. I'm sure processing was a little bit different. Then. True. I guess some of the questions that I would like to know, and I'm not sure that anybody would have the answers, because I think what um, Cheryl told us actually was, that they haven't heard from anybody since in law enforcement since 2005. That's a That's long time. A long time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my I, my big question is, you know, we know that she was sexually assaulted. Did they do a rape kit on her? Right. And if so, that means DNA, I would think, unless somehow they managed to protect themselves in some way. But even then, you know, there's sweat and there's all kinds of things. And you also think, too, if there was a struggle, then what about um, fingernails? Were there, mm-hmm. um, was there yeah. DNA under fingernails? You know, what what evidence was collected that could potentially be resubmitted? Yeah. Because DNA analysis has come so far. Yeah. Well, and that, you got to think fingerprints, too. I mean, you know, yeah, even they, now you can test fingerprints. Then you right. probably couldn't so much. They, but. Reportedly found several fingerprints. Yeah, and I'm wondering if they were on, I mean, I would think the silver dollars or the Susan B. Anthony dollars would be like prime. If they grabbed those and dropped them in the yard, they would definitely have fingerprints. Was there, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, there's just so much that should have been in that scene, especially if they just ran. They also, you know, she was nude, but where where were her clothes? Were they in there? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. to know, like, was that ever tested or looked at? Could it be resubmitted now? Um, yeah. We requested a copy of Carmel's autopsy from the Department of Forensic Sciences in January of this yeah. year. January. And as of a week ago, they were still waiting for approval from the Lowndes County DA to release it. Right. I mean, eight months. You know, that's really frustrating. And... I can appreciate that they're having to wait for the DA's office. This is, um, how long now are we? Is it 33? No. No, that's 38, yeah. We're at 38 years now. And autopsies are public record unless there's an ongoing investigation. But you have a family that's saying they haven't heard from anybody since 2005. Yep. There's really been no update on it, um, at least as Which far is as. 18 years? Yeah. So see me doing math. Your math is better than mine. Oh yeah, both of us are getting there. Um I have a hard time saying this is an active investigation. 
Yeah. It should fall into that this is automatically public record because it's been so long. Yeah. This is exactly why we have that petition going because there needs to be some processes and procedures and policies in place to allow families access to this information because it shouldn't just be able to be indefinitely withheld. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I started reading, um, there's, I read books all the time, and there's a book actually from, uh, um, it's called How to Solve a Cold Case and Everything Else You Wanted to Know About Catching Killers, Michael Arntfield, Ph.D., and Michael Arntfeld is actually one of the co-founders or co-directors of the Murder Accountability Project. And he also helped um, with the Homicide Victims Families Rights Act, the federal one. And so one of the things that they initially proposed, the book came out before they actually passed that. But one of the things that they proposed was that when families submitted a request for the case to be reviewed, an unsolved case to be reviewed, that they could actually have it sent to a third-party organization. It didn't necessarily have to go back to the original agency. It could go to a third-party organization like, um, essentially, it could come to somebody like us, like Alabama Cold Case. Right. If we met the criteria, you know, they'd have to establish certain criteria. Or it could go to Cold Case Foundation, or it could go to, um, you know, Carolina Cold Case Coalition, or, you know, some of those places, the... Um, Doc Society or whoever. Yeah, yeah. anybody, yeah. And um, that's something that needs to be looked at. Because this is, here we are going on 40 years. This is one of the older cases. We've had a few, we like don't have very many that are older than this, but we've got some. Um, right, yeah. Where it shouldn't be taking this long to get an autopsy record that technically is public record. And it's being held under this open investigation where there's been no communication exactly, with the family. Yeah. Like, when is the last time somebody even looked at this? We don't know. Because um, SBI joined the investigation fairly early on, like we said. And in August of last year, I actually sent an email to an investigator on another case um, at SBI who had some familiarity with this case. And asked if they could help us get in contact with the whoever worked on this case, worked on Carmel's case, or would currently be the person that would we would need to talk to to get a status or whatever. Exactly. And yeah. Yeah. We didn't get a response from it. It's just frustrating. It's not just frustrating for us, but it's frustrating for the family because well, there was yes. actually a really good quote in in that book um, from Michael Arntfield. And I actually posted it um, because I was up at like 4 a.m. I just randomly wake up sometimes and I have the cases on my mind. And if I don't write stuff down, I'll forget it. And I can't tell you how many times I wake up in the middle of the night for hours thinking about one case or the other. And so I'll read about, I'll open one of these books. I like have five going at any given time, just about it. And one of the quotes that just kind of, it fits this, it fits all of our cases really was, in my experience, the more time drags on, the more families and communities merely want an answer rather than justice in the traditional punitive sense. The definition of justice is more malleable now than ever, and it's not always tethered to the courtroom. The idea, therefore, that a police department is able to maintain exclusive access to a file for decades without actually doing anything with it, years after the suspect is dead and buried in many cases, and an arrest is impossible in any event, 
is becoming increasingly antithetical to what most people now consider justice for past wrongs. Many collateral victims, family, friends, communities, simply want an answer, respect, and to be made whole again. And I think that's exactly it. It's, they just want an answer. Yes, We've talked exactly about right. that. That a lot of times, families are like, I don't even care about an arrest at this point. You know, if it's a missing person, we just want to know where they are. Yes. You know, if it's an unsolved homicide, we just want to know why. We hear that all the time. All the time. So when you posted this, and immediately when I saw that, I was like, yes, I think I've heard of this, you know, this person in this um, quote. And it just hits so close to home for, you know, what we do and what we're trying to achieve with this pet- petition. You know, it's just, it's everything that we're talking about. And, I, you know, maybe part of that, too, I think it was the part about even after a suspect is dead and buried in many cases. And I think sometimes that's where the cases just get kind of shelved for the long haul. It's because it's like, well, it doesn't really matter if we figure out who did it anyway. Or and maybe we have an idea yeah. who did it, but they're long gone. We heard that before. We have heard, yeah. Unfortunately, we've heard not in a just a resignated sort of way, but in a from the lesser wonderful investigators out there, we've heard a couple of people really think that it didn't matter anymore. And I don't think you can, the part about to be made whole again, I, there is no whole again. There isn't, yeah. It's a different, it's, it's a different type of whole. You can't. Yeah. There's no real justice in any of it. I think you probably, there are days where you wish that you could be made whole again. Yeah. It, I mean, they probably do want to be made whole again. They would like to go back to a time, maybe sometimes, where they this never happened. Yeah. I think there's a different thing. But, um, you know, it is it is an answer and it is respect and it is just communication in general. Right. Um, wor- being worthy of somebody's time and knowing that your family member mattered to somebody beyond just you because they do matter. They are, they are people. And... It, they're not paper to just be they're stuck not, on a shelf somewhere. They're not a story. They're not just something for entertainment that we that we share and record and post about for likes. They're living, breathing people that have family that were living and breathing at one time. Exactly. You know, I miss her every day. I would love it if she could see her great-grandchildren. And whoever did this took that away from me, my children, and my grandchildren. And I would love to see somebody pay for what they did to her. But, you know, I know that they will eventually. They will eventually pay. If not now, you know. Yeah, they took a lot away when they took her away. We'll make sure to put a link to our petition in the description, as well as the contact information for this case. But if you or anyone you know has any information at all regarding the murder of Carmel Harrell, please contact the Alabama State Bureau of Investigation 
at 800-392-8011. Since Alabama Cold Case Advocacy's creation, we have dedicated innumerable hours to researching and networking in an effort to provide the largest platform we can to the cases we share. We shoulder all associated expenses with Alabama Cold Case Advocacy out of our own pocket, including the subscription fees for researching and production of the Unforgotten podcast to provide a cost-free avenue for the victims' families of those cases. We hope you will join in our efforts to raise awareness of Alabama's missing and murdered and support these families who have been forced to carry the immeasurable loss of their loved ones and the fight for answers. If you appreciate our mission and you are inspired to make a donation, your extra support will enable the ACCA to continue our research, share the cold cases, and help those families know that they are also unforgotten. Unforgotten is an Alabama cold case advocacy podcast recorded in conjunction with Riverside FM, hosted and distributed by Spotify for podcasters, available on your favorite podcast platform. Intro music for the show was created by Principles of Uncertainty, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Content and production is by Sellers and Stormy. Artwork by Sellers. Credits for music, sound clips, special mentions, and any source referenced in our podcast can be found in each episode's description. We hope you will join us on all the major social media sites and continue to raise awareness of our Alabama cold cases. Until next time, thank you for listening, and remember, justice may be delayed, but the victims and their families remain. Unforgotten.